The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. This morning, if you do have your Bible this morning, we are in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I did not get the stats up here, but as you're turning, I will go to my phone and do the math just by chapters. We have finished 8 of 13 chapters, folks, which equates out to be 63.5% of Hebrews has now been preached through. If you were here during the Mark years, we had not gotten this. 63% of the book, uh, through the way, the book of Mark took about two years, if you're comparing apples to oranges. But we are in Hebrews chapter 9, if you have your Bible this morning. And as we get to this, I want to remind you what we're not here to do. In light of what we just prayed, we are not here to hear political commentary. We're not here to to, uh, tell you the headlines of the day or give you the sports updates. We are here because we have the very word of God before us, right? That's what we're here to do. So if you are able this morning, as Brian said earlier, if you're able to and can, or, or if you can't stand, just stand with us in spirit and in heart. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word this morning, let's do that to God's glory. We'll be in Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. The sermon title has been ongoing, greater than, and uh, it is now speaking in the topic of old access. Christ is greater than the old access, and you will see that clearly as we go through the text today. Here the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, writing sometime before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD to a group of Christians who were deciding, do we go back to the old way or do we follow the greater way, which is in Christ? Starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence, and it is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Your Bible might have the holy of holies there. Having the golden altar, verse 4, of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. That, that's literally the Ten Commandments there. And above it were the cherubim, verse 5, of the glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of all these things we cannot speak now in detail. But these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and that not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which, verse 9, is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for which the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared, you got to love, I'm going to interject here, but when Christ, if you are an underliner, highlight that thing till you run out of ink and do it till it go, until cows come home. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that had come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Boil down translation. Jesus, Jesus is better than everyone else. Nah, 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 nah. And that's what it is, because he is. Jesus is nothing or he's everything. And that writer of Hebrews says, the new access we have through Christ is better and greater than the old. Will you pray with me this morning? We're going to be looking at that as we unpack this. But what a word for us today, but in Christ when he appeared. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you and may you bless the reading, hearing, and doing of your word this morning. And we take a moment to use that silly phrase to remind ourselves, Lord, nothing of the past was, with, was without your plans. But we know, Lord, in Christ now, we would be fools if we do not follow the path laid before us. For, Father, the path is one that is called the narrow path, the, the path through your Son, the way, the truth, and the life, the one under heaven by which no one can be saved, and that is the risen Christ. Father, we have gone through the book of Hebrews. We have savored all the chapters. But as we enter chapter 9, we remind ourselves once again that we who are in Christ have been given the greatest privilege ever, that we can go to you at any time without all the things the first 10 verses talked about, only by grace, through faith, for your glory, in Christ alone as shown in your scripture alone. Father, we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Give us wisdom this morning and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you very much. Well, you may remember some of you uh, are, are, are gun owners. I think that can be said in most conservative congregations. That's not what we're talking about. But this morning, there is this old building, and Andy will put this up. Many of you have maybe been here before or seen this before. If you are into those weird, fake ghost documentaries, you probably have heard about this before. This is the Winchester Mansion, founded by Sarah Winchester. The Winchesters are famous, of course, for the Winchester Rifle. If you're a history buff or know anything about history, you know the Winchester Rifle pretty much won the West. And in those days, Sarah lost her husband. Sarah was the wife of the, the founder of the rifle and lost, tragically, also her only child. And in the, about the year 1884, she went from New England all the way to California to buy a farmhouse to get away from it all. She had more money than she could ever live with. She had all the things she could ever do with. But she bought a little farmhouse, but she constantly had something on her mind. She could not get over how many people's lives probably were lost because of her husband's invention, the Winchester rifle. So from 1884 to 1922, the farmhouse was subject to constant 24-7, 365 construction. No kidding. This is a fact of American history. So for, for 16 years to 1900, plus 22 to 1922 when she died, 38 years around the clock, the mansion kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And because she was a spiritist, Sarah Winchester believed that she had to make rooms to nowhere because she believed. Has anyone ever been to this place before, seen this before? I'm just really curious. Uh, it's in California. It's in the, uh, the L.A. suburbs. And they, she made rooms to nowhere. Literally, if you go Google it, she has a door that leads to nowhere, almost like we had out here on our building before we built the deck uh, during the uh, COVID days. And she would put them there because she thought that would stop the spirits from tormenting her. Those who passed away at the, at, at the, at the bullet shot from a Winchester rifle. And you can imagine that as you enter this building, it's still unfinished to this day. 
It's actually in a landmark, a historical landmark, if you ever go see it. And they'll take you on tours of doors that literally have no pattern whatsoever. It's crazy. It's over 12,000 square feet. It has hundreds of, uh, of, of rooms, some as small as this pulpit, some as big as this room. It is crazy. All because she felt the guilt of what her husband did. Her conscience was never relieved of everything that happened because her husband had done those things. Sarah Winchester passed in 1922, as far as we know, without knowing Christ. Well, friends, it is one thing to go under endless construction like the Winchester house. But I want you to know there is a great parallel to that story to what we just read in the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, although prescribed by God, the worshipers of that time never had a break, did they? They were constantly offering sacrifices. They were constantly going to the temple. They were constantly hearing the goats die and the the blood being thrown and all the things that happened in the temple, and it never ended. It kept going. And yes, that is what God gave them, but can you imagine the weight of that every day? The, The thought that I have to go and sacrifice again or have a priest sacrifice for me? And in one sense, the construction of the tabernacle may have been done, but the tabernacle itself could never achieve what it pointed towards. That sinful man could not enter God's presence without someone covering it. And that only one person being the high priest. I want to remind you in 1 Peter 3.18, and Andy will put this up for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. So that being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The Old Testament was really about one thing, pointing to the greater need for a sacrifice. Jesus is the better Adam who passed the tent in the garden. Jesus is also the true and better Abraham who answered God's call to leave all that was comfortable and to go out and and to create a new people of God. Jesus is the better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the better rock of Moses who was struck with God's justice and now gives us water as it is to drink in the desert. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm so we might be brought in. Do you see how like that Winchester house where things never got completed and things kept going over and over and over, how you here sitting in a chair in 2022 can rest because Christ said it is finished. Church would look a whole lot different if we had to constantly keep going to Christ and asking to be saved over and over and over and over again. So friends, this morning, who is making all things new? Christ is. The old has gone, the new has come. The big idea today, if you're following with us, this is just a summary, the the thesis of the whole uh, shebang of the sermon that it is, is that in Christ, we not only have access to God, we have atonement with God and can see the glory of God, but we have the very presence of God living within us. Look, man's greatest problem has always been that we have been separated from God. So when Jesus came, he had to do things equally well. Jesus had to be perfectly God and perfectly man, and only he was qualified to do that. Jesus is eternally God. He's perfectly man. He is the God-man. I want to remind you this morning, there is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. He was raised as our justifier, he ascended as our mediator, and he's coming again as our bridegroom. And what love is this indeed, that he would do these things. And the writer of Hebrews is now going for the guttural. Chapters 9 and 10, he's getting ready to go and cut the artery of the old system. 
But I want to remind you before we get into the points today that the temple is still standing as he writes this. The temple, you know, where they made all those sacrifices is still standing. Maybe a few years out from being crushed by the Romans, but it's still standing. And these people are making that choice. Am I all in for Jesus or am I going to play both sides of the fence? And if you're with us this morning and you don't know Jesus, you cannot play both sides of the fence. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I pray you listen clearly because you need to hear this as much as anyone else. So this morning, three ways, three ways that we see three truths about access to God, access through Christ, to Christ through God. I want to start with the first one, which is this, is that old access is prohibited in Christ. Old access is prohibited in Christ. Andy, if you just want to put that up for us, please. Old access is prohibited in Christ. I want you to see verse 1. It says, again, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. You know, I asked on Facebook to a bunch of pastors, and I asked on my Facebook, maybe you commented. I didn't get a chance to really respond to a lot. But I asked this question. I said, what are some things in church that are man-made that we do in our churches that the Bible doesn't necessarily say to do, but we do them, and and they're, they're tradition, they're things that we do. We had everything from a microphone to air conditioning. Did you know the Bible doesn't say we should have or have not air conditioning? But praise the Lord, we do. Amen. But there's a lot of things that we do, baby dedications, um, walking the aisle, passing the plate. These are things that we do. There are other things that we say and do from the pulpit, a call to worship, uh, three songs, then a sermon and another song. That's not necessarily biblical, but we do it anyway. So these are things that we do. But back then, they had a very strict rule of how things were to work. In fact, it says right here, God gave it to them. He prescribed it to them. And so this old access started with doing exactly what God said to do. Now, Christian, I don't want you to think that God doesn't give us rules as we come to worship. We are to come in unity. We are to come in humility. We are to come as one lifting up Christ and Christ crucified. We are to come to make much of Christ. We're not here to make much of Darren or Nelson or the bearded man, Brian, or whatever we have. We are here to make much of Christ. But so many churches have forgotten that it really is about Christ. But in those days, the old access was prohibited. But he gives you here in verses 1 to 7, uh, basically a summary of all the requirements that it took to be there. But it really is to communicate to you that sinful man cannot access a holy God. In verse 1, he says it is a place of holiness. It's a place of earthly holiness. And he goes on in verse 2 that for a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table. And he goes on to list these things. And this earthly sanctuary, this first tabernacle in verse 1, is only the only part that is shown for most people. Because from here on out, only the priests could enter in. And he says in verse 2 that there was an outer one, an outer room of the tabernacle. There was an inner and an outer. The outer place, verse 2 says, was a holy place. This is where the priests could go. So if you want to put it in our terms, all but three of us in this room could go into that place. I don't know which of our three pastors would be the high priest. I'm not good with blood. Maybe Nelson is. He would have to do that. It's his birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Nelson. We love you, brother. I told him I'd pick on him from the pulpit, and I will. But the fact is, if you were not a priest, you could not enter in. And that was the regulation. There were three furnishings that were listed there, and you see them. There was a lampstand. I want to remind you from the Old Testament, this was made of pure gold, weighed about 75 pounds, and and it it had seven prongs. And you notice here, God is very specific 
in his church. Man does not get to call the shots. There is also a table, probably about as big. Um, I'd say it probably would be about as big as our Lord's Supper table there. And in that table, uh, it faced north. There was also the bread and the presence. You remember they had 12 loaves of bread, six on one row and six on the next to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 tribes of Jacob. And it's basically to show the people again that you cannot enter in, only the priest can. Then he goes on in verse 3. He gives you what else was prescribed in the old days. He says, it is called the holy place in verse 2, but behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. And I want to remind you that this most holy place is also called the holy of holies. One person, once a year, could go in there. That's it. And what was in there? Verse 4 tells you. It says, having the golden altar of incense. This golden altar of incense was always in the first room. But the high priest would bring it in with him into the Holy of Holies as part of the prescription of what God told the high priest. There was also, verse 4, the Ark of the Covenant. Indiana Jones had nothing on the high priest once a year, right? As he went in there. And in there, there were several things. The Ark of the Covenant, in which was a golden urn holding manna. Well, why would he hold manna? Do you ever think about that before? It's showing that when God's people do God's work, God's way, God will always provide as God said he would. The manna is a representation of God's provision. Secondly, there was Aaron's rod that blossomed. And you may remember it produced almonds. Uh, Maybe this is the first almond milk prescription. I don't know, but it's out there. It produced almonds. It signified the power of God to keep and intervene with God's people. And then next, you notice the, the tablets of the covenant. What are those? Well, those are the second rendition of the Ten Commandments. You remember what happened to the first one, don't you? Moses decided he wasn't happy with those people, and he went all WWE on them and went, psh, he did the knee buster and busted them apart. But we have them. And I want to remind you that these are inscribed by the finger of God on the rock. What this is communicating in verse, and we're still, uh, old access is prohibited, but what it's communicating is that all mankind has lost access to God. Only one person can enter in. But it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 5. Above it were the cherubim. The cherubim were the angels, the the, uh, special angels, it says, that were overshadowing the mercy seat. You remember the high priest had to take the blood and, and, and put it and sprinkle it over the mercy seat. And on top of that, the angels faced downward so that they were not looking directly at God. This is a picture of Isaiah 6 when the angels flew around. You remember, don't you? In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and what? Lifted up. And I saw the the train of his robe and all those things that you know. You can't look at God because when you do, you die. And they covered their faces. The summary of this Speaking in verse 5 again is that man's sin has separated them from God. And you go on in verse 5 and it says, of these sayings we cannot now speak in detail. He says, look, if you want to read the whole thing, go back to your Bible reading program back from January to, to March and you'll get all those details. I'm just summarizing it for you. That's one preacher that actually summarizes and doesn't give you the whole thing. That's a rare fact in these days. But the point is, they had no direct access to God except through one person. And that person had sin too. That person had every failing too, every weakness too. Verse 6 goes on, and it says, These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes once a year, not without taking blood. 
which he offers for himself and the unintentional sins of the people. Friends, I don't think we understand how great a significance it was for these Hebrew, professing Hebrew Christians in this letter to make a decision for Jesus Christ. We as Southern Baptists, and this doesn't affect most of us, our biggest party each year is whatever city we direct it to. Uh, this year it was in Anaheim, California. Next year it's in Louisiana, New Orleans. We have a big get-together of all the churches who can get time and money to get down there. And that's a big deal. On, May, on September 18th, we're going to celebrate our 60th anniversary. That's a big deal. And as a side note, thank you to all who are helping with that. It's, they're doing a lot of great work behind the scenes. That's a big deal. But this was a bigger deal than all that. All of Israel showed up for this day. You watched the animals get sacrificed. Kids' eyes were not covered. They saw it all. They watched as all the priests took all the preparation work and walked into the temple. It was a big deal. And when he went in there, there's no telling if he's coming out of there. All the people held their bated breath waiting for him to make sure he was going to make an appearance out of the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 3 tells him he couldn't just wake up and go in. It took a lot of preparation. The exact moment in time God said is when they did it, usually late September to early October, depending on the calendar. But the point of it all is, is that access for regular people like you and me was prohibited, except for one person. Andy, if you want to put up the next little note on that slide. Isn't it good to know that in the grace of Jesus, God's amazing grace, that in today's world with Christ, your access is not restricted by your personal or family history? Did you ever think about that? That you coming to Jesus is not based upon who you are, where you are, what you came from, or what side of the tracks you grew up on, or what, what family tree you, you don't want to associate with, or what you do want to promote. Your access to God back then, unless you were a specific line, at a specific time, and a specific person, was prohibited. But today, because of Christ, all who call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Red or yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. All who say, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin, I repent, and believe you are the, the one and only Savior, can now have access to the same God that only one person did for all those hundreds of years. Christian, do not forget the blessing that you have. You don't go through Pope, whatever his name is, in Vatican City. You don't go through local priests, such and such. You go directly to the throne room of God every time you pray. Don't think your prayers are without effect. Oh, I pray and it just hits the ceiling and falls down. Hogwash, they go before God and he hears you because of Christ. But back then, unless you were that special someone, nothing could be heard. I am so grateful for Christ and the access to Christ. Whether I'm driving down the road and I about want to, you know, do one of those Hollywood movie things and knock someone out like a road rage kind of thing. And, or, you, come on. There's that moment where I can pray, God, give me peace in this moment. Or Lord, I don't know what to do in this moment. And I don't have to go through a priest and wait in line in a confessional for you to hear me. Lord, you hear me directly because of Christ. Or Lord, this person needs Jesus. Lord, would you be with these, this missionary work? Lord, old access has been prohibited, but now in Christ it has been provided. Let us not grow comfortable church in forgetting how easy if I may use that word, we have it in the days that are now filled with Jesus Christ. We forget how much we have in Christ because of what we read in these verses. Old access is prohibited. I want you to notice, secondly now, 
want you to notice secondly here that old access is pictured in Christ. Old access is pictured in Christ. Andy, if you want to go to the next slide, that would be great as well. Old access is pictured in Christ. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says in verse 7 again, But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers himself for the unintentional sins of the people. But by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. What is he saying here? He says, first off, the access is prohibited. But you notice in verse 8 here, he says the Holy Spirit signifies this. That's an interesting thing. The writer of Hebrews does not use the phrase the Holy Spirit much in this book. But he now says the Holy Spirit is giving access into the holy place. If you're a note taker, I want you to note this is one of the few straightforward instances in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is equated to being God himself. Did you catch that? Father's God, Son's God, Spirit's God, three in one. You all know that well, the Trinity. They're not the same. Father's not the Son, Son's not the Spirit, Spirit's not the Father, yet they're co-equal, co-eternal, etc. But the Holy Spirit signifies. Your Bible might say the Holy Spirit says. And what it is saying here is that the Word of God that you hold in your hand is authored by the Holy Spirit. We believe from Genesis to Revelation, every word here, as Scripture said, is powered, if you will, inspired by the Holy Spirit as men were carried along, Second Peter says. It is also that the Scripture says in 2 Timothy 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. Everything we have here is profitable, useful for doctrine, doctrine and correction and teaching and, and correcting in righteousness. So I want you to know the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, but he still used normal, everyday folks like you and me. Because your personality is not Paul's personality. Peter's isn't James, and James isn't Jude's. But don't miss this. The old access is pictured in Christ because now the Holy Spirit signifies a way into the holy place. And you notice that phrase there in verse 8. It says, it has not yet been disclosed where the tabernacle is standing. In other words, when Christ died, even before he died and after he died, we all go back to the same source. The Old Testament saints were saved by faith looking forward. We are saved by faith looking backwards. But they could not realize, these Hebrew Christians he's writing to, the significance of Christ until that temple came down. If you talk to any honest Jew today, they will tell you there is no place to sacrifice. Some of y'all have been to Jerusalem before. Is there a temple there today? No, there's not. It's actually a mosque that is over the temple where the temple used to be. And you can get into all that history. But the point of it is, is that they have no place to sacrifice these days, literally. Yet today, the only thing that they can do is hope and trust that they are basically good enough. Their deeds are merited enough, righteous enough to get them to heaven. Oh, I am so grateful that our, son, our, our Savior, the Son of God, does not count our merits against us. All our works are like what Isaiah 64, 6 says, a filthy rag, and that a minstrel pad, if I may use such Hebrewism words. Yuck. But in Christ, in Christ, we now have access. Look at verse 9. He goes on to tell you how that access comes to be. He says, which is symbolic for the present age, speaking of the, uh, the temple. And according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
I remember some 18 years ago when I was in Guadalajara, Mexico. Don't ask me to speak Spanish. I took it. I passed the class. I graduated. That's all I know. But I remember walking down to the cathedral in Guadalajara, Mexico, the oldest standing cathedral still standing. Guadalajara is by Puerto Vallarta area. It's on the western side, Pacific side of, uh, of Mexico. And I remember walking down. I've shared this with you before, but it'll never forget my mind. We've been uh, going through things at home. My wife told me I had to weed out a lot of old stuff, so I found old pictures. And so anyway, a lot of them ended up in file 13. But I have a picture of one that I held on to. It's in my office where there's a person bowing down at an idol, uh, basically mummified old saint in Mexico. And these people would literally walk on their knees up the stairs of this old cathedral to earn brownie points with God and kiss this thing. They'd have someone spray it and wipe it down every time. This is way before COVID. And they did that over and you could just watch them over and over and over again. Verse nine speaks to this that we have in what is now the temple picture of what Christ came to do, but so many people miss it. How many people do you know in your life who try to earn their way to heaven because they think they're just a little bit better than the other person around them? You know those people, don't you? Friends, there's nothing we can do. The gifts and sacrifices could not remove any guilt. They could not perfect They could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. If you have your Bible, underline that word perfect in verse 9. Underline that. Literally, it's the same word in Hebrews 7, 9, where he says to us, and I'll read that for us. Hebrews 7, 9 tells us, we read this a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Hebrews 7, 9 uh, refers to the fact that one might even say that through Levi, he received the tithes and paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still, actually, I have the wrong reference. It happens, but it's there. The point is, that word perfect, perfect, literally means salvation. They could not earn their salvation by doing the things God told them to do. Well, pastor, why did God give it to them? Go back and listen to last week's sermon. Everything was pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, to the point at which he tells them, going on down to verse 10, that there has now been a reformation that has started. If you look at verse nine, he says, these things have happened, but only deal with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Reformation just simply means that things have changed to restore that which has fallen. We look back as Protestants to 1517 when Martin Luther took that, that famous 95 theses and nailed it on a door and all the Protestant world and all the Western world was started. But here, fallen man needs to be restored. And the whole point of it is, is that everything that was in the Old Testament was a finger pointing forward to what Jesus was coming to do. It was pictured in him. And you can be assured that if your conscience has been pricked by the Holy Spirit, that you are a child of God. If you truly know this picture, this reformation, this greater perfection, then you know that you're a child of God. How do you know you're saved if you're saved? It's not because a pastor told you so. It's not because someone at vacation Bible school told you to write your name in the back of your Bible and every time Satan comes at you, you go back and read the date and time and remind Satan of that. It's not because you raised your hand one day and prayed a prayer to come to know Jesus. If you're a Christian today, you are saved in the same way everyone else was. The Holy Spirit came like a tidal wave on your life and washed, knocked you down. And the only way was to look up and see that Jesus could save you from your sins. 
Not church attendance, not church giving, not whatever, but Christ. And these people in that day and age needed to hear that as well because everything they did was not for naught. God gave it to them, but now that Christ had come, it had passed away. And Christian, I wanna remind you, if God is still working in your heart and you feel guilt for your sin, even in Christ, that is a praise because the moment that your heart gets so hard, you don't care about the things of God anymore, that is a, that is a terrible thing to be. If you're a Christian and God is still pricking your heart, that is evidence that you have known Christ, you're held in Christ, and he's gonna hold you forever in his name. But if you're a person here today and God keeps pricking at your heart and showing you your sin and you run away from it and like Pharaoh, you harden your heart. Remember, Pharaoh hardened it, but God, yes, sovereignly also hardened it, yes and yes. Then you may not know Christ, you may know religion. But if you're a Christian here today, everything of the old access was pointing to Jesus and that is what it's all about. Last point is this, the old access was prohibited it was pictured, but now new access is permitted. New access is permitted in Christ. Look down at verse 11. New access is permitted in Christ. There's that but. If you haven't underlined it a thousand times and your ink hasn't run out, please do that before you leave. But it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, or literally as some manuscripts, good things to come, what is he saying? When Christ appeared, when Jesus came on the scene, when he moved in the neighborhood, when he tabernacled among us, the good things is that Christ is coming. There's redemption for our sins. The great and more perfect things he talks about in verse 11 are that he did not enter a tabernacle made with human hands. He didn't have to go into the temple. Did you ever think about that? If Jesus was the great high priest, why didn't he? I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm just trying to tell you how I think about things sometimes. If Jesus was the great high priest, you would think, right? He would just walk up into the temple, throw back the curtain, lay down on the altar and say, here I am, sacrifice me. Why didn't he do that? Well, first off, he's not a priest in the sense of a Levitical priest. We've talked about this, didn't he? Jesus did not come through the tribe of Levi. Which tribe did he come through? Tribe of Judah. So he wasn't allowed in there. But he's God. Where isn't he allowed? Well, as a man, he still obeyed the law. Jesus didn't come to, uh, he came to fulfill the law, but not to abolish it. When he died on that cross, that was his offering. That was what he came to do. That was where he had it to be. And you notice that he did this, not entering into the human temple, but he did it outside the temple. And it says in verse 12, he entered, and we're gonna get into this phrase many times, underline this, once for all. Every time I hear this, this is how much Hollywood invades your brain. Every time I hear this, I hear the three musketeers. All for one and one for all. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about Jesus once for all. The writer of Hebrews just turned the whole sacrificial system on its head. You don't have to go every year. You don't have to do daily sacrifices once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood or goats or calves, but by means of his own blood. You know, sometimes when you go to someone's house, you ask them politely, is there anything I can bring? And that's assuming they're making the main meal and you're bringing a side dish, right? 
Uh, our, our guys ask that all the time. Do I bring a big thing or a side dish? It's up to you, but whatever food's at the men's dinner is what we eat. So you, the more the merrier, right? But Jesus didn't bring a side dish. He brought the main meal, the dessert, the drink, everything, put it in himself and sacrificed it all. He was the whole kit and caboodle. It was once and for all. He didn't need any extra help. It says by means of whose blood? His own blood. Thus securing eternal redemption. If you're a Christian here today, you are not eternally secure because you're a Baptist and we believe in eternal security. You are secure because Christ secured it in himself and that given by the Father himself. You are secure as Christ is to the Father. Four, verse 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinklings of defiled persons of the ashes of heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh... In other words, he's not denouncing it. He's saying God prescribed it. It had its place and its purpose. But now, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I want you to note in verse 14, the Trinity at work. Did you notice that? Verse 8 talked about the Holy Spirit speaking. Verse 14 talks about the Spirit it talks about God referring to the Father and Christ referring to the Son. One of the clear pictures that we have of the deity of the Spirit, of the working of the Trinity together in the salvation of our souls. And Andy, if you'll put up the last bit. Some of you struggle even today of past guilt. Some of you struggle even today with sins and things that you did before Christ or even in Christ knowing that you're saved. And I want to remind you that this verse, especially verse 14, tells us that we need not fear what's inside of us because we are fully covered by the blood of Christ. Some of us, as we think about things that we've thought, considered, desired, or attempted to do, we, like Peter, run away and just cry our eyes out thinking, Lord, how could you ever take me back? But I am grateful, aren't you? that there aren't enough bulls and calves and goats or whatever cows that can ever make up for the once and for all sacrifice that Christ that says, I see you not as you see yourself. I see you as the Father sees me. That perfect sacrifice just for you. And church, can I say a word to us in this church? This is not necessarily in the context, but I think by application, the link is there. If there is nothing that Christ cannot forgive God to man, God to woman, God to child, whatever the age or sex. There should not be anything so heinous in this church that is committed. Yes, it needs to be repented of and maybe face consequence for, let's not forget that, that cannot be forgiven by the church to people who come sincerely back seeking that forgiveness. Does that make sense? What if one of our young ladies ends up pregnant in our church and walks in with a belly someday and she's a good church girl? How do we react? What if one of our members who used to walk faithfully with Christ walks away but comes back and starts walking in and we kind of think, oh, yeah. Look, we love people. We take them where they are. We, 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 we have to deal with sin and deal with messy situations, but we love people where they are. Can I just be personal for a second? You love me where our, we are and our family is, and you put up with us, and we love y'all. 
But if Christ can take in a whole system that was following his commands, but still misguided in how they laid out their commands, how much more now in Christ can we welcome anyone who wants to come in and receive the forgiveness of Christ? There's no sin so big God can't forgive. There's no sin so big that we can't forgive each other. All because of Christ. This morning, across the world, there are billions of people worshiping something. And they're looking for peace. Christian, as you walk out today, you have the greatest peace known to man. If you're saved, you have the peace of Almighty God given to you in Jesus Christ. Will you join me as we pray and close out together? Father, we thank you as we truck our way through Hebrews. These are not sermons that are going to make the top 20 of any, <laughs> any top sermons. These are not things, Lord, that most churches are going to preach on on a Sunday morning. Not that that makes us any better or worse. But, Father, we are grateful through the steady repetition of hearing the word of God that reminds us that outside of Christ there is no hope. But in Christ, there is all hope. Father, we thank you that although the old access has been prohibited, we thank you the old access was picturing Christ. We thank you that the new access is now permitted in Jesus Christ. Father, let us not waltz into your presence as it were, as, as just forgetting that we are before a holy God. But may we, like a child, humble, expectant, and just eyes wide open to whatever you may give us. Come before you and seek your face. Forgive us, Lord, when we seek your face in pride or arrogance or, or, or just routine or rote or just out of habit or duty. Free us, Lord, to, to come to you as those who've been liberated with the, the gospel of Christ. I pray for our church here at Tower View, Lord, that as we come to you, it is a, it is a serious reminder of our sin, to be sure but it is also a joyous celebration of what it is that we are now free from all our sins. Father, I pray also for our church that we would not seek to one-up each other in how we spiritually live out our lives. That, Lord, humble and unified and all the great things that Philippians talks about is that we come together, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and God of all, that we come together reminding ourselves we are on the same team, and that is the team Father, that your son secured for us, where Jew and Gentile, Scythian, barbarian, Gentile, female, male, whatever, come together in Christ. Guard our unity at this church, Father. Guard our joy in this church. Guard our doctrine in this church, all wrapped up in what your son gave, and that is all of himself, for your glory, for our good, and ultimately for our salvation. Lord, we love you. We have so much to thank you for. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen.